you are the one who is above us. And there is none who is above you. It's our joy as an act of our continued worship to throw our hearts and minds wide open to you. Teach us, Lord. We pray in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. In case you haven't noticed, we Christians don't exactly blend into this world of ours. More and more, there are stark dividing lines between those who believe that there is a personal God who is involved in this world and in our lives and those who don't. The, the secular sacred divide has never been more stark than it is today. So think about this. There, when it comes down to it, there either is or there is not a God who created me and you and has designs on our lives. From that starting point, there unfolds two radically different ways with two completely different perspectives and approaches to understanding reality and, and that lead to two completely different sets of priorities and moralities. We see it and we hear it and we feel it all the time, every day. TV ads that show two men snuggling and holding hands Animal rights activists who tell us that human beings are no different than other animals and maybe are worse than some of them. Artificial intelligence developers who are excited about the prospect of creating a source of intelligence and understanding independent of human beings. Couples who are living together and having sex before marriage or without even giving any thought to marriage. Individuals treating abortion as a convenient way of ridding themselves as of a mistake rather than of seeing it as the taking of a human life. Gender is something that we choose for ourselves rather than something that's chosen for us at our conception, and so on. And unfortunately, as you know well, the way that we have these conversations across our lines of difference in our society is not always very civil. There's no pulling punches on social media where words are often harsh and accusing and attacking and often, unfortunately, equally unpleasant from both sides. You're wrong. You're judgmental. You're sinful. You're hateful. Sometimes the critique of the church is fair. Mahatma Gandhi's words should pierce us. He said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. But even when you peel off the layers of label throwing and motive impugning, even when you look past the finger pointing and finger flipping, there remains a fundamental and undeniable difference between those who are followers of Jesus and those who are not. And believe it or not, the heart of that difference is not in the area of morality. It's in the area of authority. A number of years ago, I was at Vaughn's bookstore, and I overheard a conversation between two staff people who worked there. 
I was the only person in that part of the store, and I was way back in the back, but I could hear every word of the conversation. One of them was up front at the register. The other was kind of partway back in the store, rearranging the books on the shelves as they were getting ready to close the store. And I couldn't help but hear their every word. They were talking about a friend of theirs who was gay and how her parents, who were Christians, were telling her that she was wrong. And they were complaining about how Christians are so hateful and so bigoted and so controlling, always trying to impose their medieval moral values on everyone else. And who are they to tell us how we should live? It was about at that point that I walked up to the cash register to check out. And as I walked up, I, I quickly prayed for five seconds, Lord, what? I mean, should I even engage in this conversation? And what in the world would I say? I got up to the counter, and the person behind the counter was someone that I recognized, somebody I'd interacted with a little bit, not someone I knew that well. As I handed her my credit card, this is what I found coming out of my mouth. <laughs> I couldn't help overhear your conversation. The woman looked up immediately, and she saw me smiling at her, so she smiled back. I went on. Man, there are just so many different ways of seeing things, aren't there? There sure are, she said. You know, I've been thinking a lot about this lately. It seems like so many of the divides in our culture are along moral lines, arguing over who's good and who's evil. That's where all the rock throwing is. But when you really come down to it, isn't it really a question of authority instead of morality? As soon as I said the word authority, she stiffened up. She looked back up at me, the smile gone, with a guarded expression on her face. I know it's, it's kind of a loaded word, but authority is really just a way of asking where we turn to get our answers, isn't it? I mean, who gets the last word in our life? And... and intriguingly, interestingly connected to that is what gives us the confidence that that's a reliable place for us to turn to get the answers to our questions? I mean, we don't get anywhere if we just argue about morality. But talking about authority, I mean, isn't that something we could have really interesting conversations about? At that point, she, her expression had softened and she was just looking at me and listening, and she said, hmm. Unfortunately, at just that point, another customer came from another part of the store, and we didn't get a chance to have that really interesting conversation. But I have had that conversation with a number of others, and it is a fun one to have and a fruitful conversation to have. Well, this fall, we are uh, in the middle of a sermon series that's taking us through the various themes that, that uh, run through Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica, which is one of the letters preserved for us in the New Testament. He's writing uh, to a church that he helped establish in the city of Thessalonica in northern Greece. We are at a turning point this morning in our series. 
For the first half, we focused more inwardly. We were focusing on what have been called the Christian graces, the inward graces of faith, hope, and love. But this morning, we turn our focus more outward. And for the rest of our series, we'll be looking at the intersection between church and culture. And specifically, we're going to be looking at the question of identity, which you may remember is where we began this sermon series all the way back in August. Identity, it turns out, is one of the key themes of this book. So over the next several Sundays, we're going to be focusing on the theme of identity and authority, identity and purity or conformity, identity and purpose, and identity and community. And if I could just say, especially to those of you who are our students, middle school, high school, college, grad students, I think what we are talking about over these next four Sundays is crucially important, especially for you as you come into the world the way that it's going. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, Paul says we shouldn't be the least bit surprised when we find a stark difference between those of us who are followers of Jesus and the rest of the world. We should expect it, he says, because of our identity, because of who we are. To his fellow followers of Jesus, he says, you are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like the others. Our identity is different, so our lives will be different. So let's dip into this theme of identity and authority now. Let me go back first to the message with which we started this series when we first looked at this theme of identity. So what are we talking about? when we talk about identity? Well, it's really uh, how we answer questions like these. Who are you? What is truest of all about you? What defines you? What explains you? What makes you, you? So here's the way our surrounding culture answers questions of identity. People who don't live with God at the center of the picture and who put themselves there instead answer these questions perhaps like this. I am the sum total of my personality, my looks, abilities, interests, ambitions, dreams, political convictions, and so on. I am the cool clothes that I wear, the cool car that I drive, the cool friends I have, the cool school that I attend. Nothing outside of me ultimately defines me. I am my own person. There is no one else in the picture who explains who I am or why I exist. So I am whoever I want to be. I am who I choose to be. No one else has the right or the power to define me. How differently a follower of Christ answers those same questions of identity. Who am I? As we said at the start of our series, here is the most important thing that you can know about my identity. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. We know, dear brothers and sisters, that God loves you and has chosen you to be his very own people. The most important thing about me is that I am loved by God and chosen by God. I belong to him. My identity isn't based on some aspect of me, my personality, my preferences, my ability, my appearance. Nope. My identity isn't based on anything intrinsic to me. It's based on something, on someone outside of me. 
If you want to know about me, then you need to include him in the picture. I am a child of God. I am a follower of Christ. The surrounding world uses lots of preferred pronouns to stake out identity. For the Christian, there's just one pronoun that establishes our identity. We are his. Chosen by God, loved by God, we belong to him. So now, let's shift to the question of authority. What exactly are we talking about when we talk about authority? Well, authority is the way we answer these kinds of questions. Whose are you? Who is the author of your life? Who is writing your story? Who's deciding the shape of your life? Who or what has the last word in your life? Where do you turn to get final answers to your deepest questions? Who are you subject to? Your answer to those questions? The way that people who are the product of our secular culture might answer these questions won't be a surprise to us because they're so closely connected to our sense of identity. Who has the last word in my life? <laughs> what are you talking about? The person who has the last word in my life is me. I make my own decisions on the basis of my thoughts, my feelings, my desires, my leanings, my preferences, what makes the most sense to me. I make my own decisions. And that's, that's part of what maturity means. I grow from being dependent on others to being in charge of myself. And no one else has the last word in my life. The world around me tries to tell me who I am and how I am to be, but that's wrong. I answer to me. When it comes to identity and authority, you could capture the view of the surrounding world like this. Now let's explore how Paul addresses this question of authority in his letter to the Thessalonians and how he suggests that Christians will answer some of these same questions. We actually start with a verse from another book of the Bible, from a book that's called The Acts of the Apostles, which is a, a short history of the very early church and how it spread. It's also captured for us in the New Testament alongside Paul's letters. And in that book, in Acts chapter 17, we are told the story of how Paul and Silas and Timothy established this church in Thessalonica. And then almost immediately after they arrived, within weeks, they began to encounter opposition, resistance from the people around them whose beliefs they challenged. And this is what those people said about Paul and his team. Acts chapter 17, verses six and seven. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And they profess allegiance to another king named Jesus. If you've been around Covenant for longer than 15 minutes, you have noticed the crown logo that we use. You see it everywhere, even in our stairwells, which I love. They're meant to remind us of the absolute center point of our faith as Christians, which is our belief that Jesus is our king. And when the Bible talks about believing in him, as we are urged to do, 
When you encounter the word faith, that doesn't mean believing a few things are true about him. That word faith and belief, that New Testament Greek word, always means giving him our allegiance. It means coming to a place where we recognize him as our king and ourselves as his subject. That means that we recognize him as the one who has the final authority in our lives. The Jesus we worship as king has been given all authority by God the Father. What he says goes. G.K. Chesterton says, God is the author and authority of all things. To what extent does your life reflect that? So turning to Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, we don't get very far into this letter before we come to a description of what it looks like when the church places itself under Christ's authority as king. Chapter 1, verse 9, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, that doesn't sound so dramatic. When we think about serving, we tend to think of individual acts that we choose to do because they think they would be a good thing. They have a, a beginning and an end, and they're done. So I serve you by vacuuming out the car or watching the kids or washing the dishes or something like that. But in the Bible, this expression, serving God, means something way deeper and wider and more all-encompassing. This word actually comes from the word slave, not the word servant. Think about the difference. A servant gets to clock out at the end of the day and go live or his or her life on his or her own terms. But if I am your slave, I belong to you. I've completely given over my rights and my possessions to you. I've relinquished my life to you. It's your prerogative as my master to direct my life in whatever way you wish, to tell me what to do. My time, my abilities, my possessions, they are yours to do with as you please. So that's what it means when Paul says that these Thessalonians serve the living and true God. Their lives are completely surrendered to him. They've given themselves over to him as king, giving him full authority in every dimension of their lives. Paul gives us a picture in Thessalonians of what it looks like to accept God's authority and what it looks like to reject him. According to Paul, God's authority is either recognized, in which case it is yielded to, submitted to, as was the case with the Thessalonians, and Paul actually talks about this in, um, in chapter 4, verse 1, which says, We instructed you how to live in order to please God and in, as, in fact, you are living. So you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Or his authority can be rejected in chapter 4, verse 8. It says, Anyone who rejects this instruction doesn't reject a human being but God. When we reject his authority, we set it aside, we ignore it, we, we act as though it has no significance to us. And chapter 2, verse 18, gives a picture of that sort of life. It says, they fail to please God and they continue to pile up their sins. All right then, practically speaking, what does it mean for us to experience the authority of God in our lives. How does God convey his authority? I mean, he's invisible. We don't hear him. We don't see him. 
Jesus once walked in our midst, but he's ascended to heaven. We, we don't bump into him. So how does God exercise his authority in our lives? Well, Paul actually talks quite a bit about how God does this in this letter. First, he says, God speaks with authority through his word. As Paul tells us elsewhere in his writings, all of scripture is God-breathed. It finds its source in God. And God uses these words to teach us what we should believe, to correct us when our beliefs are out of line, to train us how we should live our lives, and to correct us when our lives don't line up with our beliefs. When we open the Bible, we can turn to it with complete confidence. Paul says in a number of different ways in this letter that this word is true and it is trustworthy because it is from God. It's his good news. It's the Lord's word. So practically speaking, as we think about our own lives and what it means to place ourselves under God's authority, if we want to live as ones under God's authority, then we should be immersing ourselves in scripture, which is the primary way that God speaks to us and leads us as his people. We should spend time in scripture every day, planting those words in our minds and in our hearts. I mean, you think about this. The world around us is actively discipling us into its way of thinking. The way that we counter that is by allowing God to actively disciple us by immersing ourselves in his word. So do you make time to be in God's word and to let God's word to be in you every day as a way of listening to his voice and placing yourself under his authority? I think we must. And then Paul touches on another way that God exercises his authority in the church, and that is through our spiritual leaders. In the first two verses that are listed here, Paul is speaking about himself and the other apostles. These were the disciples of Jesus to whom God gave unique authority as the early church got established. So we would expect that Paul would talk about their authority. But it's interesting when you get to the third of these verses, the one from chapter five, Paul widens that out and he includes every pastor and every elder. Every person is in a position of spiritual authority. This is what he writes in chapter five, verses 12 and 13. We ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, I think this is really intriguing what Paul's getting at here because in the case of scripture, we have a perfect earthly authority to turn to. But in the case of spiritual leaders, we obviously have an imperfect one. And yet... God urges us to recognize the spiritual authority of our pastors and our elders as people through whom God expresses his authority in our lives. Those of you who are members of this church family, you remember that that you were asked to answer this question in front of the congregation. Do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church and to the spiritual oversight of this church's session? That means your pastors and your elders. So what's the nature of your relationship with those that God has placed in spiritual authority over you in this church family? 
So just an observation at this point. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts about this. I think a trend of concern that began to surface in the evangelical church in the 80s and the 90s was a trend towards consumerism, where churchgoers began to base their involvement on what they felt would meet their needs, sort of a pick-and-choose approach to churchgoing. There's another trend of concern that I'm seeing today and has become, I think, increasingly evident in the past five years or so. And it's one that I think is even more concerning than consumerism. I guess you could call it a spirit of, of spiritual autonomy, of self-pastoring, where we become our own spiritual authority. I create the spiritual program that I believe will bring about the growth that is best for me, that I want. So I pick the preacher I want to listen to, the sermons I want to hear, the books I want to study, the, the people I want to be in fellowship with, and I step out from under the leadership of an individual local church. I'm my own pastor because I think I know what's best for my own spiritual growth. I mean, obviously, where this ultimately leads is to each of us being part of a church of one, and I am the pastor in that church. But sometimes the best thing for my spiritual growth and for the growth of those that God has placed around me, for whom God is concerned, isn't the thing that I might pick for myself. When I'm the one calling the shots in my own spiritual life, there's a whole lot that I might miss. And when God puts us in a church family, part of why he does that, as we'll explore in a few weeks, is in order that I might be a blessing to my brothers and sisters, even at cost to myself. So they will miss out as well if I am my own pastor. So that sort of rejection of authority of a local church pastor and elder actually, when you think about it, seems like a way of trying to live the Christian life in the spirit of autonomy that marks the world around us. Just a thought. So coming back then to the way that Paul understands God's authority in our lives as Christ followers. Here's an image that might capture the biblical idea of our relationship to God's authority. So let me just share a closing thought and then leave you with a couple of questions. Here's the thought. There is something that rankles us, all of us, at the thought of somebody being over us, isn't there? Authority, for most of us, sits uncomfortably on us, kind of like an itchy wool sweater. It just doesn't feel good. And I think that's because, for most of us, when we boil down this idea of authority, most of us think in terms of submitting to rules. And rules feel harsh, impersonal, cold, unbudging. Rules are binding. They limit us. They keep us from being ourselves. And that's really the issue, isn't it? But what would happen if we were to shift our understanding of authority from submitting to impersonal rules to submitting to the rule of a personal and loving king? 
a king who delights in us and chose us to be his very own, a king who laid down his life for us and invites us to live our lives for him, a king who knows what is best for us far better than we know ourselves, and who has given us his word and our spiritual leaders to help bring us into the joy and freedom of lives lived for and under him. My sister is a landscape architect. When you think about it, her job is to impose her authority over plants and trees and bushes in a way that brings forth their best. Our culture loves life, but it doesn't love limits or constraints on that life. It rebels against the idea of living life according to a certain design or within certain limits. It celebrates indiscriminate life, a live and let live sort of life. It prizes autonomy, license, latitude, freedom, self-rule. And this is a picture of indiscriminate life, an overgrown field. It's a picture of life that is allowed to grow without constraint or direction, each plant doing whatever comes naturally. And it's a mess. But here's a picture of what happens when all that life is brought under the watchful eye and loving authority of the gardener. Each plant situated with care, placed next to other plants with intention and purpose. The ground cultivated and weeded and rid of whatever is detrimental to growth. Each plant pruned and pinched back and watered and well-fed with a loving eye. The whole organized and arranged according to a design in the mind of the architect. Laid out to bring forth the beauty of each individual plant, but also of all of the plants together. Some juxtaposed alongside others that are similar, others brought side by side with others that are dramatically different. And all of this allowing each plant to be even truer to itself than if it was allowed to live however it desired. The first picture of life out from under a gardener's authority is a picture of license. It's a picture of life run amok. It's the life we think we want. And it's the life that this world offers. The second picture of life under the skillful hand and loving authority of the gardener is a picture of true freedom. Of life lived according to God's design. And that's the life we were made for. Proverbs 29 says, when people do not accept divine guidance, they run wild. But whoever obeys his rule is joyful. And some closing questions. As you think about your identity, what makes you you, and as you think about this idea of authority and who you allow to have the last word in your life, which is the picture that best describes you? Which is the picture that you want to describe you? What do you hear as Christ the King's invitation to you this morning? 
And what is your response? In just a moment, we will turn and step back into this world of ours. And we need our faithful God to take us by the hand and to lead us. And he will. The same God who has gone before his people all through the ages takes us by the hand and goes before us. So let's worship him. Let's tell him how much we need him. And let's open ourselves to him anew as people who belong to him.